Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. So here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go ahead and open your Bibles. I've been reading uh, through uh, 1 Samuel again recently. You know, Kenny and I are doing this thing where I guess he's convinced me to help him write a book. We're going to write a book over first principles, leadership principles from 1 and 2 Samuel. And that's actually, he and I are going to do some morning sessions at the discipleship conference over this. And so I've been refreshing my mem- memory on some of the, uh, the stories from, from 1 Samuel. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but in chapter 8, uh, you know, after lots of battles and frustrations with the nation of Israel between them and the, and the Philistines, um, first Sam, uh, or sorry, uh, the, the prophet Samuel comes before the nation of Israel and he calls them to repentance of their sin. And though we don't have time to delve into all the different issues with their lack of faith and their, their failure to, to be involved in worship and Israel was just in a really rough place, and, and they had been uh, worshiping false gods. There was many, many people worshiping the false gods of, of Ashtaroth and the other surrounding nations. And, and so Samuel calls the nation to repentance, and, and they repent with weeping. And, uh, and Samuel rules over the nation as the prophet and as the judge for 40 years, and there's 40 years of peace. Now, Man, it had been so long since there had been any peace at all in Israel. And so 40 years of peace was was quite the feat, right? God was at work in the lives of the people. Now, I don't know if you remember, though, as they come to the end of this 40-year period, they make a request of Samuel. What's the request? Do you remember? Give us a king. And, and there's a lot to say about this story, but, but it reminded me of how easy it is that we can get, you know, uh, restless. And, and how even when things are good, we, we, we find ourselves in seasons of apathy and discontentment. Even when it seems like, like we're surrounded with blessing and, and everything is going really well, we find things to complain about. And we, we find issues in our, our heart and our lives uh, that, that we just can't seem to get over. We obsess about things. Like in the stillness of the blessing, in the quietness of the blessing, we find problems. We find problems with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We find pro- and what happens is we're in danger of becoming apathetic. We're always in danger of becoming apathetic. And so today, as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are going to see, uh, you know, the Corinthian people, after eight years of doing church together, they find themselves in a position where they are endangering the relationships and the unity of the body in their church. Subtle things had crept into their worship practices that had that had put them in a position where they were risking everything. They were, they were potentially going to divide the church with their behavior. And the question for us is, how do we get there? How do we get to that place? How is it that we are so quick to turn the remarkable into routine? 
And so, as usual, we have some questions to ask ourselves before we get into the sermon. And the first question is this. Are there times and seasons when I feel apathetic towards God, His church, and my ministry? Now, of course, the answer for all of us is yes, there are times that we feel that way. You know, maybe it comes in a moment, but sometimes it comes in seasons. And, and I, you know, for some of you who are new to the faith and new to the church, maybe everything right now seems exciting and, and everything that you do, every activity that you're involved in, every relationship that you're building only feels exciting. But the truth is, there is coming a moment where that's going to be tested by your flesh, by indifference. There's coming that moment. And the question, the other question is this, where does that come from? And I think if we can figure out where that comes from, then we can protect ourselves from falling prey to it. If we can figure out where, where are those, those false views and those, those feelings of apathy, where do they come from, then we can protect ourselves from falling prey to, to, to those thoughts and those feelings. Cool? Are you guys ready for this? I think this is going to be good for where we're at as a ministry. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us and, and have him lead us and you know, pray we always want to pray in these moments that God would give us personal conviction. See, none of us in this room are perfect, right? Like, you may be sitting there feeling kind of perfect this morning, <clears throat> but the truth is there are things in your life that God wants to, to test. He wants to try. He wants to refine you. And so as we pray, make sure that you're personally asking the Lord to help you and to guide you in this season. Don't be apathetic or indifferent as it concerns what we're about to do, Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love you and we're grateful for any season and any moment that we get to open your book and, and to, to peer inside. And we do ask that you would use your word as a reflecting glass, as a, as a mirror to expose in us um, our weaknesses. Lord, examine us this morning and allow us to examine ourselves that we might, we might be able to pinpoint point weaknesses in our relationship with you and the areas of our ministry and our relationships with one another that are prone uh, to falter or, or you know, uh, I think, Lord, when we look at each other week after week, and we sit in Bible study week after week, um, the novelty begins to wear off, and, and I think that we're all a little in danger of falling out of love with you and, and your people. And so, God, I, I pray against that this morning. And, and Lord, I, I ask that you would refresh our love for you. And, and as a byproduct of that, Lord, would you refresh our love for one another and the work that we're doing? We, we cannot grow t discontent in this work. You have a kingdom that you want to build. And, and oddly enough, you want to use us to get that work done. And, and if, we, if we fail to see you, um, we, will, we will lay down our spade and we will uh, lay down our sword, and we will lay down our horn, and we will walk away. And it, and it will become just another, uh, just another um, story of our past, you know. And uh, we can't afford that, Lord. We want you to use us mightily. Uh, we want you to establish revival um, in our midst and everywhere we go. And so, God, I, I pray that you would show us, show us the way. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> Forgive me, I've got this, uh, this tickle in my throat. <coughs> you guys, is anybody still suffering from the throat tickle left over from the flu last month? 
And when you sing, it, it like makes it worse, doesn't it? <clears throat> so I give you all permission. Clear your throat now. <clears throat> you get a... And Blake, Blake had me uh, slaving over interviews yesterday for the postscript. We did four interviews yesterday, and so I'm a little bit, little bit out of sorts, but we'll get there. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, read with me. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I, I praise you not. Okay, so if you remember earlier on in the chapter, he, he kind of, he lays some praise to the, to the Corinthian account, right? <clears throat> and he was maybe being a little bit facetious, but he, earlier on he was saying, hey, I'm thankful for you and I praise you in this regard. And now he's saying, look, I, I cannot praise you in this area that we're about to address. That ye come together not for the, better, for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and one is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I, uh, also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had uh, supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and, the, and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry, for one, uh, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Okay, so <coughs> clearly we have a lot to cover today. <coughs> but uh, let's start here. So, so Paul enters into this portion of the conversation with a, a sterner voice maybe than even what we've encountered so far in uh, the letter. He says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. So, so Paul, he's declaring to, to make... Uh, to them, and he's getting ready to present to them what's not a warm announcement, but a very sober one. Paul has discovered a very serious flaw in their communal worship. Okay, that when they come together, there's something that's not quite right. Now, before we discuss that concern, I want to I briefly point out that Paul had heard, listen to what he says, he'd heard that there be divisions among you. Right? That means that someone had reported to him some concern about things that they saw happening in the church. And then he says, 
In his view, he partly believed it. He partly believed it. And so I think it's important for us to stop here for a moment and consider what, what does it look like when we share information with each other concerning things that we see in each other's lives. Like, it's a common thing as a pastor for someone to come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm worried about brother so-and-so for this regard, or I'm worried about sister so-and-so for this regard, and, and I'm seeing this, or I'm concerned about their countenance, or, and they, they will often come to me with information, okay? Now, that information ought to be partly believed, right? On, on my part, it's my responsibility to hear that and to partly believe it. Because it's my responsibility to be concerned with the state of the flock and to be concerned with every single individual in this room. And not just my concern, but also all the leaders in this ministry. It's their responsibility to partly believe the things that they hear, so much so that it'll cause them to go investigate further. To go and meet with a brother and sister and say, hey, what's going on? To check in. <clears throat> and so if someone comes to me and shares a concern then it's my responsibility to provide a measured response. Now, Paul had clear, uh, clearly had someone that he trusted bringing information to him about potential problems in the church in Corinth. Now, it wasn't enough information for Paul to draw a strict conclusion, but enough information to warrant further investigation and a general word of admonition. And so, the reality worth here, uh, considering here is that it's not a ministry leader's job to presume anything, right? It's not, it's not their job to jump to conclusions, but it is their job to follow up and inquire with people that they love. And I think that sometimes we're in danger of, of despising that or being afraid of that, okay? So, so let's be honest with ourselves. This is a family. And uh, the thing about family is that you know each other's stuff in a, in a family, you, you you know, you know details about each other oftentimes that, that you would prefer, you know, that people not know. But the truth is, if we're going to live life together, there are going to be things in all of our lives that come to the surface and someone is going to take concern about. Like, hey, I've noticed this pattern in your life and I'm worried about you. But the problem is that so many of us are so independent and free-spirited that, that we don't like we resist and we kick against people being that heavily involved in our lives. We, we, we are afraid of that. We're afraid of that level of involvement. And so if we're honest, this room is full of people that remain on the periphery of the ministry because they're actually concerned that if they get overly involved, well, people will know their business. Well, tough. Like, that... that the nature of God's family is that we, that we be involved in each other's lives and the, and the nuance and the details of each other's lives. And it's a good thing to press in and to, have, and to have brothers and sisters that know you and love you at that level. And, and none of this is for the sake of over-involvement or, or gross curiosity, but, but this is done for a care for unity. A care for unity in God's body. And so here's, here's our first key point. <clears throat> a good leader strives for sincere unity among those that they serve. That's what a good leader is going to do. They're going to strive for, for sincere unity. They're going to endeavor for unity. This means that they're going to they're need a little bit of liberty and grace from you. 
They're going to need a little bit of liberty and grace from you to, to provide counsel for your life and other people's lives. There needs to be some understanding that people are going to hold you accountable. You can't just get away with anything. Like if you say that you want to follow Christ and you say that you want to obey him and you say that you want to follow him in his word, you're going to have to concede the fact that people are going to be involved in your life and that you're going to be a little bit vulnerable. We're a family, and family looks out for one another. And we need to learn to welcome the intervention of those we know love us. We need to welcome that intervention, not resist it. 1 Peter 5.1 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and witness of the, suffering, uh, the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So here's the instruction <coughs> for the elders. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And so there's several things to learn from this passage, but first of all, that the leaders in your life, whether they be your pastor or your Bible study leader or your discipler, the leaders that are guiding you in the faith, that these people's judgment seat and their crown is, is reliant on whether or not you allow them to work in your life. They're motivated to do so. They're motivated to be involved and, and not for filthy lucre or not by constraint, but simply to take oversight of the things that God loves. Now, Paul here is taking oversight, and he provides admonition because of this oversight. He's received enough inform information to necessitate concern and cause him to undertake on behalf of the unity in the church of Corinth. Now, let's continue on. In verse 18, it says, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must, there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So <clears throat> I think it's, it's worth us pausing here just long enough to ask ourselves, well, what is, what is a heresy? I think it's a word that we use a lot theologically in our faith. We'll throw the word heresy around, but I think we're quick to call different things heresy, but we don't always understand what that means. I think it's, it's important for us to take a moment to consider what the Bible has to say about it. Heresy means... Teachings and practices that result in dissension or division. So in Acts, we see that the apostles were accused of being heretics by the Jews, the established Jews in Jerusalem. And they called Christianity in the way of Christ. They called that a heresy. Why? Because there was dissension that was arising among the, the Jewish worshipers. There were people that were walking away from traditional Judaism and beginning to follow in the way of Christ. And so these were, these were people that were accused of being heretics. Why? Because their teaching, teachings caused dissension. Now, on the flip side of that, we recognize over and over again in the New Testament that we are constantly being warned by the church leaders, the early church leaders, of the potential for false teachers sneaking in and causing dissension. And we are always, always at risk of that. Always. Check out this warning from Paul to Titus. Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. So his point here is, look, all these areas uh, of, of 
of conversation, theological conversation, have potential to cause dissension. So avoid the foolish questions that don't get us anywhere, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, he means after they've been warned twice about sowing seeds of dissension in the church, knowing that that, that, is, uh, that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. So what he's saying is that a person that's been warned twice, they need to be rejected. They need to be, kick, they need to be kicked out. They no longer get to remain in membership at the church. <clears throat> and so we have to understand that, that Paul is striving here for unity in Corinth, and we are going to do the same thing here at Midtown Baptist Temple, that we are going to protect unity, that we are going to endeavor and strive for unity. 2 Peter 2.1 But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So when Paul says there must also be heresies among you, and if those heresies are allowed to persist, then the repercussions will manifest among you. In other words, the, the, the natural result, if we allow these heresies to, to remain within the church in Corinth, the only outcome is going to be division and, and according to 2 Peter 2, destruction. That's what division does. It divides us to the point of destruction. In other words, the false ideas that you entertain are the false ideas that you eventually embody. The false ideas that you entertain, they eventually become the false ideas that you embody, that you live out. They, they begin to, to exemplify themselves or typify themselves in the conduct of your life in the, and your words and, and the character and the ways in which you behave. Eventually, ideas become a reality. And so heresy, heresy is always going to undermine what God has begun in you. And it always leaves a wake of destruction in its path. So, so Paul's concerns are very real. And if he believes that the church in Corinth is embracing teachings that contradict the doctrines that he set forth, then they must be addressed. All right, now, that, th- this is not even the point of our sermon today. But why did I want to take time here? Why did, I want to, why did I want to take time here this morning? Because I want in this body, in this fellowship, I want us to be open to accountability and I want us to resist false teaching. I, I, want us to be open, I want us to be open to people being involved in our lives and I want us to all work towards the end that we might be unified in Christ. Because we can't, we can't afford to be divided. We need to be a church that endeavors for unity. But how did Corinth get here? The question here for, our, for our, the majority of our sermon is, how did Corinth get to this place? How did they find themselves so dangerously close to collapse? It's, it's at this point that Paul begins to spell out the specific problem that had potential to cause serious division. So let's start in verse 20. You with me? When ye come together, therefore, into one place. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Now, so wait, wait, wait a second. What is he describing here? What is going on? It was just in the last chapter that we had a brief conversation about the Lord's Supper and the significance of it. Specifically, how as, how, how as one of the two ordinances that we abide by, that it pictures for us the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the broken bread is intended to symbolize for us his broken body and what he laid down on our behalf. And, his, and, and, and the cup is supposed to picture for us his blood that was poured out that washes away our sins. And as we together participate in the Lord's Supper, we collectively find ourselves as one and unified before the living God, declaring before him and remembering before him all that he's done for us. See, see the Lord's Supper is supposed to cause us to worship, but it's supposed to also cause us to come together, to be unified. That's the end, the, the, the end result of practicing the Lord's Supper. In uh, chapter 10, it says this, The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being made are one bread and one body, for, for we are all partakers of that one bread. But what Paul discovered and what we're discovering now is that in Corinth, this time of the Lord's Supper, uh, it had been consigned to nothing more than a selfish meal. It was mealtime. It was time to feed their belly. He says, look, when you gather together, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. You might call it that. You can call it anything you want. You know, it's really, it's, it's interesting how we ascribe holy names to wicked things. Like, we'll, t- we'll take biblical words and biblical concepts and we'll overlay them over selfish activity. And then we'll use that to justify what we want to do. Oh yeah, this is the Lord's Supper. But what was it that they were doing? What was it they were actually doing? These folks in Corinth were gathering together for the Lord's Supper. And instead of focusing on Christ, they were literally bringing their own meals to church. This just reminds me, I couldn't help but think of um, uh, Andy and David Saunderson. I don't know if you guys have noticed yet, but every week at Tuesday night meal, they're bringing a better meal that they bought somewhere else. <laughs> have you guys noticed this? They're like, like we're sitting and we're, we're like we'll be eating the, the fried chicken this week. And they'll be bringing in like something that's like just slightly better than that. And they'll come and they'll eat with us. <clears throat> but, but what we're looking at here is like that on steroids. These folks were stopping at their favorite steakhouse on the way to church. And they were getting their favorite meal. They're picking up a bottle of Merlot. Pairs well with their, you know... A medium rare steak, you know? And they just headed over to the church for a meal. People were literally coming to the Lord's Supper to get a little turnt. I mean, I'm not, you guys see what it says there. 
For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. You know, the, 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 the thing about this, you know, so that obviously that, that's clearly wicked. They're they are way out of line, right? But what makes it even so much worse is that this church, as we've said before, was a diverse group of people. And so you have rich people and poor people in the church. And you have a, master's, a master class and a servant class that are attending this church. And And so you have the richer, wealthier people bringing their favorite meals, lobster bisque, right? And they're bringing, and they're sitting down and they're eating in front of those who can't afford to eat. And so there's no preferential treatment. There's no esteeming one another. And so they've they've taken what God intended to bring them together, and they've used it as a point of division, a point of contention, People aren't blameless. They're doing what they want to do. The worship has been stripped away from this activity. It was, it was, it was pure self-indulgence that they were engaged in. And it was a distraction from the worship that they were supposed to be focused on. It was an offense to those who were excluded, and it was a pollution to God's holy name. Listen to what he says in verse 22. What? What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Like, you can't eat at home? You can't stuff your face somewhere else? You you have to take your self-indulgence and bring it into the church and put it on display? And this is, look at, listen to this accusation. Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. And and here's the warning, and this is what I want to get at today. (laughs) Crying and coughing at the same time, that's a weird thing to do. Started to tear up and then I went. Here's the warning. See, their worship had become nothing more than just another meal. It's just another meal. They had completely lost sight of God, and in turn, in turn, they completely lost sight of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's our key point. When we forget Christ, even the holiest activities can become routine. When we forget Christ, even the holiest activities can become routine. You know, this is, this is what our ministry and our churches become without a relationship with Jesus. How many of us have found ourselves frustrated or disappointed in our brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, let's be honest. How many of us have in our heart been prone to accusation or frustration or they just don't understand me? They just don't get it. And thrown up, thrown up a wall or hardness in, in your heart. We've, we've all done this. We've let bitterness seep in. And, and so then when we come to church or we do any activity related to the church, that thing is just lingering in the back of our mind. Or, or maybe we've gotten so used to complaining about how hard our lives are 
or how difficult the ministry has been. That when it comes time to do ministry, that we are completely indifferent to the activity that we're involved in. The Holy Spirit is not involved at all. We've pushed him out. We've all been there. We've all found ourselves in moments like this. Our view of the church is wrong because our view of Christ is wrong. Our view of ministry is wrong because our view of Christ is wrong. And so here's the the necessary key point we need to get down. Your intimacy and love for Christ keeps the wonder in the work. It keeps the ministry remarkable and miraculous and transcendent. Our, Our relationship and our love for Jesus is what infuses infuses the miraculous into everything that we do. It makes our work divine. See, they had forgotten. They had forgotten Jesus. They had forgotten who he was. They had lost the spark. They had, had allowed the remarkable gift of the resurrection and their friendship with Christ to evade them completely. They weren't even thinking about him. They were doing the Lord's Supper, but he was nowhere to be found. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And I think that that's what a lot of us are missing. I mean, a lot of us, we've been doing this Bible study thing for a while. We've been doing the, we did the discipleship thing. Now we're doing the LFBI thing. And, and we get into the activity and we allow it to become programmatic. But it's not, it's not the program's fault. Right? It's not the activity's fault. It's not the ministry's fault. It's not, it's not LFBI's fault. It's not your discipler's fault. That you have become indifferent and allowed, allowed these things to become religious activities. You have lost sight of Jesus. You've forgotten what it looks like to rest in him. You've forgotten what it looks like to rely on him for every aspect of your life. You've forgotten what it, knows, what, what it looks like to, to know him intimately every day. We need, to, we need to keep our awe of Jesus. The church in Corinth, they, they, they needed to get back to remembering. They needed, they needed someone to reteach them the purpose behind their activity. So Paul takes time to re-instruct them on how to keep Christ at the forefront of the things that they do. How to use the Lord's Supper to cultivate in them a sense of wonder and awe. Verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So he's reteaching them. He's like, let let me tell you once again. Now listen to me. He's already made it clear that eight years ago when he showed up to plant the church, that he instilled in them this doctrine, this ordinance. He's taught this before. They should know better. But here he is re-instructing. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, 
speaking of Jesus, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So he says to them, get back to the remembering. Get back there. The solution to our apathy towards others and, 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 and to the ministry and, to the, and really the answer to the sense of dread that so many of us feel every day in our lives, the way we feel about our coworkers, our job, college, like all the things that we feel like, oh gosh, not again, that make us dread our day, the answer to all of this is to love Christ intimately to love him at the level of his love for us. The church in Corinth needed re-instruction, and some of you do too. You've lost your first love, and it shows. It shows in the ways that you engage with the body. It shows in the ways that you perform the tasks that God's given you to do. Christ asked the church in Ephesus to do this very thing, to consider how to regain what what may have been lost. And so in Revelation chapter 2, we have a case study in this. He writes this letter, he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's calling them, he's calling them back to worship. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and has, and has, found, and has found them liars. Okay, so he's saying, look, you have, you have weeded out heresy. Good job. I'm so thankful. And listen to what he says here. And has borne and has patience, and for my namesake has, has labored and has not fainted. You've been loyal to me, Jesus says. You've done everything I've asked you to do. You've worked so hard. You've, You've been striving in ministry. Good job. Well done. And that's what Christ would say to many of you, many of you who are involved in all these different things in our church and and have worked hard at doing your part. Many of us are loyal to the the work in this exact same way, but listen listen to verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Can you imagine Christ saying that to you? Look, good, good job. You've worked so hard. You've studied. You've preached. You've done, you've done your due diligence. But I have somewhat against you. And that you've lost your first love. They hadn't betrayed the work, but they had betrayed Christ. 
We have to remember that routine worship, that routine relationships, that routine ministry, that it's repulsive to Jesus if you don't know him. If you don't desire him first. Ephesus had lost the spark in their relationship with Jesus and and many of us are in that very same place. Well, what do you do about that? Well, Christ told Ephesus what they needed to do. In verse five, he says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. And so what do we need to do? We need to repent of that. Well, how do we do that? How do we repent of that? We get back to the first work. Well, what's the first work? Your first love is your first work. Your first love is your first work. Do you remember when you first received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the burden of your sin was lifted? I mean, there were no, like, you couldn't hear the angels singing. And there might have been aspects that were somewhat anticlimactic. You might have been standing there and like, now what? But there's one thing you probably can't deny, and that is that the burden of your sin was lifted from your shoulders, and you could have just floated to heaven in that moment. I mean, there's, there's many of us who remember what it was like when we first started following Christ. The joy that we felt, the excitement that we felt, that everything, everything was new and fresh. And Jesus was your dearest friend. What happened to you? What what happened? that you could do your Christianity like you do your job. You punch in, you punch out. But the greater purposes, they're nowhere to be found. And so it manifests itself in complaint and bitterness and disappointment and selfish behavior, selfish, where you're no longer considering anyone else You endanger everyone. You endanger the work. The warning is if you don't care, if you don't care to know me, then I don't, I don't care to let you steward anymore. I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So Christ is saying, I want your love and affection. I want your friendship more than I want your activity. I don't don't care if you quit every ministry activity. Just give me your love. let's, Let's rebuild. Let's rekindle what we once felt. And so Paul, he similarly warns the Corinthians. In verse 27, he says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, in other words, if you go into the Lord's Supper and you participate unworthily of the Lord's Supper, if your, your, your heart is wrong towards God, if you're not willing to see him, if it's just one more thing in your daily activity, if you approach it with a selfish heart or selfish ambitions, you'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord.
You position yourself to be just as guilty as the men that held, that held the nail and the hammer and pierced Jesus. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup as, with an examined heart. Examination is an integral part of the Lord's Supper, but it's an integral part of just knowing Jesus from day to day. Psalm 139.23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be, be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If we fail to find God in our ministry and in our worship and in our relationships, if we simply fake our way along, then we're in danger of mocking his holy name. And the consequence for mocking his name, it can be quite severe. Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation. That means judgment. That word means judgment to himself. You're asking to be judged. Not discerning the Lord's body. You can't even see it. You can't even see that this, the whole point of this was to honor the Lord and remember him. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. And so hear me, Kaya, listen to me. If we fail to have relationship with Christ and we carry along doing ministry activities, you know, and that's, that's for us, that's exemplified in, in the Lord's Supper, right? That's the example in Corinth. But for us, it could be really, it could be anything. It could be holding doors open. It could be serving in kid town. It could be attending your Bible study. It, like, if you're doing those things out of obligation to ministry, if you're doing them out of duty alone, and you've forgotten Christ along the way, then you're in danger of ruining this entire, this entire ministry. That all that God wants to accomplish in this local church, that you're in danger of, of threatening the very work of the kingdom in this place. I mean, I, I look around and I see so many different people with so many amazing stories, so many testimonies of all that God's done in your life. And we can, we can spoil, we can spoil that. So let us take heed, let us judge our motivations. If things don't seem right, if things don't feel right, if we feel indifferent, if we feel apathetic, well, while there may be many de details that we should examine together, at the end of the day, the answer is simple. Know Christ and know him intimately. Like I, I don't doubt that many of you suffer from lots of complex issues that, that in your heart, in your mind, uh, there are a lot of hurdles to just getting through your day. Many of you, you struggle with depression or anxiety or fear of, of all different sorts. And, and look, and some of us have done counseling together. And we've worked through some of these things. And no one's denying the fact that you've got, the, 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 in the details, there's things worth continuing to examine. But let me tell you, let me tell you, the fix is not therapy. The fix it's not an anxiety med. The fix is not a better job. The fix is not more money. 
The fix is not a, a spouse that's going to respect you and revere you all the time. The solution to all the problems at the end of the day, whether complex or simple, is know Christ and know him more. It was the answer for your salvation. It is the answer for your sanctification. Jesus is your friend. He loves you. He's given, he's given much. He sacrificed much to know you. And we deny him that relationship. And then we sit around and we complain about all of our problems. It's so, it's so funny. It's so, it's so ironic that we can literally be staring Christ in the face and know what the answer is and yet sit and complain and complain and complain. We need to remember Jesus. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another, care for one another, consider one another, wait for one another, long suffer for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that he come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Which is clearly a very scary statement. <laughs> Let's rediscover ministry. Let's rediscover a relationship with Jesus Christ. It may not always feel like, like a honeymoon experience. It might not always be, you know, you might not always have the warm, fuzzy feelings. I mean, I'm sure Eva doesn't always feel that way about me. Uh, sometimes it is just work. But the thing about my marriage relationship with Eva is I know that she's always with me. And I can talk to her. And I know that she's going to understand. How much more does Christ understand you? How much more does Christ want to walk with you? And even, and even when it doesn't feel right, you have him. You have him. Now let's, let's rediscover ministry. Let's remind ourselves of just how remarkable it is to know him and to love him and to call him friend. And if it feels like routine, it's because you've let it become that. Because what we do is no less magical and amazing today as it was a year ago, as it was when we first knew Christ. It's no less remarkable. It's just that we've forgotten. And if you've forgotten, then come forward this morning. Is it still morning? No, it's no longer morning. It's afternoon. Come forward and deal with it. Lay it down. No one's asking you to vow a vow, but simply tell Christ, look, I've neglected you and I'm sorry. You're my friend. I love you. And I want you to be a part of everything that I do. I've forgotten, but I want to remember. 
That's the invitation for today. Um, David, if you'd come up, I'd love it if we did Rest in Him again, that song. Um, But let's pray. And if you've got something to work through with Jesus, if ministry has become routine or you've, you've grown indifferent, Let's, let's talk to him. He wants to hear from you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, forgive us of all the ways in which we busy ourselves and distract ourselves from knowing you. There are very many, you know, disciplinary, practical things that we probably should do, all of us, to make sure that we're leaving space in our life, some margin for just knowing you, to just enjoying your, your, your friendship. And we fail to do it. And we pretend to know you. Like, we may even read our Bibles. And we pretend to know you. And yet, we're not walking with you. Um, We've left you behind. And so, God, I ask for forgiveness. And I ask that you would would re-spark in our heart a desire to consider all that you've done for us. Maybe it's time for us to go back to the Gospels in our personal time and to read all the ways in which you love us, all the ways in which you're for us, and all the things that you've said over our lives and all the ways in which you've sacrificed on our behalf. It's, it's worth us reconsidering. Lord, some of us just need to repent of sin because our sin has kept us from knowing you. It's hardened our heart. It's kept us distant. We've been holding on to things that that ultimately they impede, they impede knowing you, they impede our ability to press in. And so God, I, I pray that people would throw away their sin, they'd cast their cares at your feet. Lord, help us this morning. Help us to be good friends to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.